Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. I was recently emailing with a podcast listener who was telling me she is thinking about becoming a dog trainer, and I asked her what she currently is doing for work, and she said she works in human relations. And I said, oh, well, HR is kind of like human training, so you'd sort of just be moving from one species of animal to another. And uh, and I also said that I really never appreciated how important HR people are to businesses until School for the Dogs got to a size where it became quite evident to both me and Kate that we had uh, we had <laughs> so many people on staff that the people on staff needed their own person, basically, to take care of them. We don't have a full-time HR person, but we do have someone that we work with on an as-needed basis, and uh, that is um, something that's been really, really useful. And a podcast listener wrote back and she said, yeah, you know, I don't think I really saw the connection between dog training and human re- human uh, resources until I started listening to your podcast. But now I, I see how uh, behavior is unfortunately coerced a lot um, in businesses. I also see how Sometimes rewards aren't used effectively or appropriately, uh, and being a dog trainer yourself, you must be particularly skilled at uh, managing staff. And I wrote back to her and I said, you know, yeah, maybe you would think so, but the reality is I think management in general is something I really, really struggle with. I've talked a little bit before about, you know, School for the Dogs' origin story. Kate and I met about 10 years ago, and we were both uh, at a time in our lives where we were trying to figure out how to become dog trainers. I had been uh, a freelance journalist and a journalist on staff at different New York City papers uh, throughout my 20s, and Kate was a graphic designer at a at an agency. We met through an association for professional dog trainers uh, message board, I think, and went for a cup of coffee. Turns out we, we lived literally across the street from one another. And uh, I, I kind of proposed to her. I said, you know, let's, let's figure out a way to start something together. I saw early on that we had uh, talents and skills that complemented each other, and we were kind of both at the same place of starting out. Uh, we knew a lot about training, but we both knew we, we needed to know more, and we both were sort of equally stumped as to how to become professionals, and doing it as a team seemed like it would make things easier. 
And um, I'm definitely more of the visionary of the two of us. And I, I just saw that, you know, I, I had the, the entrepreneurial spirit, the high risk tolerance. I had lots of ideas. She had a great eye for branding and design. She's someone who's very detail-oriented, very process-oriented, and we both had, you know, tons of enthusiasm, and uh, so we decided to start this thing, which we ended up calling School for the Dogs, and from the beginning, I really felt like we needed to have a designated training space, which in New York City is pretty rare. Almost every dog trainer I know operates either just out of people's homes or out of dog daycares. But I was hell-bent on us having, like, a designated classroom, uh, I think because I just felt like I wanted to be able to manage space and that um, it would just develop a different relationship with clients if clients were coming to us. I mean, we were also going to clients' homes, but that having sort of a home base would set the tone for everything we did, and I I just, like, couldn't – I couldn't conceive of how we could have a business – without that so we took all the furniture out of my living room put down rubber floors and that became school for the dogs 1.0 and from the beginning I had the idea that we could have some sort of training center and I remember even referring to our uh our first classroom as you know our dog training center and Kate would kind of giggle and be like you know it's just your living room (laughs) but I I had this this uh, image of some kind of future place where we could do a lot more uh, than we could do that we could offer a lot more than we could offer within the confines of my I don't know two or three hundred square foot uh, living room in a walk-up Manhattan apartment And I also think I sort of had the idea that one day I wanted to do less hands-on training myself. Uh, I saw myself becoming more of like a dog training evangelist. Um, I saw that, or I had the idea that my talent was maybe more about um, communicating my enthusiasm about animal training to other people, maybe through writing. I, I don't know. And I'm not sure I even would have like said all of this in these exact words, but I'm just trying to uh, describe how I did have some kind of vision of a future for school for the dogs and a vision for my life and my, my, my day-to-day work that actually isn't so far off from Uh, the way things are today. But I had no idea about the steps that would need to be taken to get from there to here. We never had any kind of real business plan or funding, you know, for the first four or five years. It was basically just me and Kate doing everything. Like once in a blue moon, I would barter with a client to help me with QuickBooks or something like that. But for those first few years, the idea of having even one employee seemed like an impossible dream. Although actually we did have one employee from the very beginning who is still with us today, uh, Doris, our wonderful cleaning person. She actually feels like family to me. Actually, her cousin is my daughter's babysitter. And you know, it's funny when I when I've 
lamented to friends at times about how hard it is to manage staff. Uh, I've had friends who've said, gosh, you know, the only staff I've ever had to manage is uh, my kid's babysitter or my my cleaning woman, which actually, you know, always makes me feel better. It reminds me that it's not a given, right? We don't learn in high school how <laughs> to manage people. Neither Kate nor I ever studied business. We both just set out to train dogs. But I think what often happens with uh, successful small business owners is, you know, uh, they start out doing the thing they're passionate about, and then they end up uh, running the business, which involves skills and talents that have nothing to do or little to do with uh, their original uh, passion project. We started out with a business that involves helping people understand dog behavior, and I think we've both, in the end, <laughs> learned a lot about human behavior uh, on this journey. And in thinking about this conversation I had with this listener, I thought of three uh, similarities between dog training and running a business that um, I've spotted, or I guess you could say uh, lessons I've learned (laughs) that relate to dog training. I have to admit, I feel like I'm about to share three uh, failures on my part, maybe lessons not learned, but hey, you know, (laughs) one part of, uh, of growing older and I think having a business that is maturing is figuring out what I am not good at. Like many entrepreneurs, when just starting out, you're just like, I can do everything. I'll just do all the things. (laughs) And, uh, then with time, perhaps you learn that maybe you're actually not good at all the things. And you know what? That's okay. Can't be good at everything. But that's when you have to start getting good at finding people who can help and deputizing. To paraphrase uh, a famous quote attributed to Steve Jobs, hire smart people and have them tell you what to do. I, I really uh, have lived by that in the last few years as um, the business has grown uh, to, <laughs> to a, a size and shape that, has, that became unwieldy for um, me and Kate to handle. A few years ago, I kept thinking of Little Shop of Horrors, you know, like they start out with this nice little Audrey II plant in their plant store and it ends up becoming this uh, blood-sucking monster plant. I, I kind of felt like School for the Dogs was like that for a little while. Like, what happened to this nice little plant we started out with? Um, feeling less like that these days, I think that's largely because of, uh, of um, smart hiring we've done and smart delegating we've done and uh, the people that we now have who are helping us run all the various aspects of the business. Anyway, so... The first uh, lesson that I think is both true whether you're training a dog or running a business is that it's a really good idea to have a shaping plan. You want to figure out where you want things to go and then break that up into little steps and figure out how you can um, incrementally train behaviors that will take you 
uh, to that final goal, whether you're um, training and, and rewarding yourself or someone else, be it a, a dog or an employee. And I am really, really bad <laughs> at doing this. Now, I do think I have other talents that uh, have saved me from uh, from the fact that I'm really bad at this. I think I'm very good at thinking on my feet. When I was a full-time journalist, I don't think I ever wrote down a question before an interview. I very seldom wrote out any kind of outline for anything I was writing. With this podcast, I pretty much wing it week to week. And I have learned to not take on tasks that are going to require a whole lot of plotting and strategizing. You know, um, I at some point I stopped taking on really any clients other than puppy clients because I just had very little patience for creating the kinds of longitudinal shaping plans that you really need to have if you want to successfully help people um, with dogs who have real behavioral issues. I would stress out about having to do that. I would stress out about having to do the follow-ups, all of it. Uh, So I just took on puppy clients um, with whom I could kind of um, be very off the cuff and uh, didn't have to usually come up with um, complex uh, shaping plans, training plans. And really, I have found the same thing (laughs) applies when I'm working with people. Aubrey Daniels is um, a behavior expert who has written a lot of books on using positive reinforcement with people. I've read a lot of these books, and it's given me great, great respect for um, people who work in the field of people management and organizational psychology. And and one point that, that he makes in his books is you don't want to have your own unique management style. You know, just like you don't want to have... Um, a heart surgeon who has his own unique surgery style, really, right? <laughs> At least if you want to be a good manager, that is. Well, my unique management style, I know, is to basically tell people, go do the thing, figure it out, <laughs> and let me know when it's done. I'm sure you can figure it all out. I am extremely hands-off, and uh, the handful of people that I do have to manage in some sort of capacity. Uh, I'm only left managing them because they are people who can deal <laughs> with my uh, hands-off unique manage- management style, uh, maybe even appreciate appreciate the freedom. But, you know, it really only works if I'm working with certain kinds of people, people with whom I have a, a very trusting relationship and uh, a similar point of view and I know it's a management style (laughs) that doesn't work with most people which is why I don't do a lot of management. Thank God I have Kate to uh, really helm that aspect 
of the business. This kind of this kind of leads into the second lesson I've learned, which is that it's much easier, I think, to use rewards with dogs than it is to use rewards with people, or at least to use very meaningful rewards with dogs. If only because we use a lot of food rewards with dogs, and dogs kind of could eat forever. I mean, you can give a lot of very small food rewards and chances are your dog is going to get tired or full before you run out of the things you could possibly feed your dog. And if you do feed your dog all the food in the house, you could still use play to reinforce good behaviors. You could use affection. You could use, you know, access to jumping up on the couch or whatever. With people, in, in life in general, sure, there are lots of things that are rewarding to us. Uh, behaviors can be reinforced with all kinds of things. But in a work situation, uh, as an employer, the main thing we have to use to reinforce good behavior is money. And money is finite. Especially when you consider the fact that, you know, in New York City, living is just very expensive. And as a business, it can be a stretch sometimes for us to even pay people who are working full time a wage uh, that they can use to live at all comfortably. And just like when we're working with dogs, you know, it's, I think it's hard to expect anything stellar from any animal who is just... Um, you know, like scraping things together in order to survive. Animals, whether human or canine, uh, don't perform their absolute best usually under stress. And if, you know, you're working several jobs, you're commuting long distances, you are not getting enough sleep, you're, I don't know, living in a two-bedroom with four roommates and surviving on dollar pizza, you're probably not going to be a creative thinker, a fast learner. You know, I was actually uh, in the election, uh, I was a fan of Andrew Yang's idea of giving everyone a uh, $1,000 a month. He called it the freedom dividend because I really do think that it would produce better behaviors overall if everyone had like a basic, basic minimum income to help buoy them uh, certainly in uh, in difficult times. But my point is, as employers, we are trying to, of course, help people make enough so they can just live. However, um, if you're a small business where you know your expenses are are high and uh, you're just trying to make ends meet yourself, it can be hard to then reward people with money. For, um, for their excellent work. And this is uh, just a harsh reality that Kate and I have had to come to terms with. And we have at times tried to figure out how we could be creative, figure out other ways to, to offer rewards for um, excellent work, things that don't involve dollars, um, like time off, for example. But when you run a business, giving someone time off is kind of like uh, a financial burden in the end in most cases 
and perks that we come up with, you know, whether that's um, having people have the option to, like, have us pay for them to do continuing education or paying them to sit in on a session with a more senior trainer. I mean, all of that, again, involves money. And we we really learned this the hard way. And in 2019, um, 2019 was uh, gross-wise uh, our best year ever. We brought in close to a million dollars, but we actually lost money, meaning the business cost more than a million dollars to run. And um, that was with uh, me and Kate paying ourselves very, very little. And um, I think there was two reasons for that, both having to do with um, us trying to use money to both make sure people um, were comfortable enough to be able to thrive in their jobs and to try and reward behavior. Um, the, the former issue happened because we were paying a lot of people a flat salary. So whether or not someone had two clients in a day or eight clients in a day, they were in the end making the same amount of money. And of course, we assumed that the person who only had one or two clients in a day was going to be doing other things with their time to try and generate business or to support other clients they were working with. But we did not have a great uh, system to manage people that closely. And I think while some people just gave gave their all 100% of the time and kept their their schedules as booked as they could all the time. Other people, frankly, took advantage of the system, realizing, you know what, I'm getting paid uh, whether I pack my schedule or not. And the other problem was we really did try and reward good behavior, good, good training work, good work in general, with money. So we gave people raises if we felt they deserved raises. We gave people bonuses. We paid for people to go to dog training conferences. We gave everyone like, I don't know, I think it amounted to like three or even four paid weeks off uh, when when, uh, all was said and done. And uh, when we closed out the books at the end of the year, we realized, okay, you know what? There is a grand divide between the employers we want to be and the employers we can be because if we continue in this way there's not going to be a business anymore and nobody's going to have employment so we need to take care of the business so that the business can take care of everyone and that was a hard lesson to learn because like I said of course we want everyone to have what they need in order to live comfortably in New York City and we want to have leftover on top of that in order to give raises and bonuses and perks etc etc and I think we can get to that point as a business but I think we were a little bit too enthusiastic and we needed to really really uh, reassess (laughs) the situation so we actually hired hired a, a CFO It's called like a fractional CFO, like a a part-time CFO, basically, to help us in the last year get a handle on 
money coming in and money coming out and to help us make sure we're tying uh, income in to what we pay out to our employees. And I think things are really going in the right direction. You know, we people hire us as professionals to help get their dogs under control, to help train their dogs, and uh, we needed to hire someone to help us get uh, get the dollars under control to train us to be better at managing money. And uh, I, I, I'm feeling good about where things are going, even though 2020 was a leaner year uh, for everyone, uh, us included, we actually did not lose money. <laughs> so in that way, it was actually a better year than uh, 2019. And I'm hopeful that one day we we can once again truly be the the bosses we would want to have. You know, I have friends who who have worked at companies that are very very successful and they do reward their employees in all kinds of ways all the time, you know, office happy hours and foosball tables and you know, paying for gym memberships or paying for uh, covering your, your pet's vet bills. I mean, there's a million perks that places have. And if, if you're a business that has money to spare, I think using it to um, help your staff live comfortably and to reward good work is, uh, is a, great, a great thing to do. The last uh, business lesson I've learned, uh, ugh, I feel like it's going to sound so, so obviously stupid that I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it, but I think I should. Um, I, I think Kate and I, though I think I'm more guilty of this than Kate, so I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about myself and not about Kate. Um, I think I... Uh, have issues punishing people. I I do get angry, but over my lifetime, I think I've spent more time turning that anger towards myself than towards other people. And I don't like conflict. And of course, this is probably one reason why uh, reward-based training appeals to me. If a dog is behaving in a way I don't like, I've learned to be able to manipulate the environment. We call it like creating antecedent arrangements in order to discourage the dog from engaging in whatever the behavior is that I don't like. Uh, I've learned to take away things that are going to trigger that behavior and to um, do what I can to just make it so that behavior can't happen, right? If your dog is in a crate, he can't also be peeing on your carpet. Creating antecedent arrangements, managing the environment, it's, it's all a really big part of 
uh, positive reinforcement-based training, setting up situations where you're not going to get the behavior you don't want and you are going to get behaviors you do want, and then you can reinforce, reinforce, reinforce the behaviors that you do like. Well, I think I have made the, the mistake of trying to do this with people when they have behaved in ways that I think are not good for the business. You know, I was listening to a podcast interview with um, Melissa Mitchner, who is a, a, she owns a grooming facility called The Bark Shop in Harlem. And she, she really came to her business uh, as a business person, she, less as like a, a, a passionate dog groomer who decided to start her own thing but more as like a business-minded person who decided to enter the world of dog grooming and she said uh you know with her employees if they're late twice they're fired and I thought oh my god that's genius (laughs) because what I think about the number of times that I you know just sort of shrugged off someone being late for work or even not showing up for work uh and then set up situations where that wouldn't happen again or where I thought it wouldn't happen again, I like want to punch myself in the face because you know what? Setting, setting the boundary of like two strikes and you're out seems actually really smart. Whereas my approach for a long time was, you know, if this person uh, isn't able to show up on time, let's give this person a job where they're not gonna have to be required to show up on time. If this person can't speak to a client without, I don't know, using profanity or whatever, let's uh, figure out things that this person can do that uh, won't require them to interface with clients. And this is just a really bad way to run a business. In my defense, I think part of the reason that I have sometimes behaved this way is because there just are not a lot of really good dog trainers in New York City. So it's not like hiring someone is as easy as, you know, going out on the street and hailing a cab. We're also a a very small business, a very tight-knit community, and I think have Um, I think Kate and I have worked at fostering a a sort of caring, close relationship um, with our staff and and with, you know, staff to staff, staff to us. And, you know, like in any work environment, when you're spending a lot of time in close proximity to people with whom you're building this thing you're passionate about, it's, you you know, you can you can end up feeling really close to people. Um, So I think those are some of the reasons why uh, we or (laughs) I uh, did the not smart thing several times of like rearranging uh, people's jobs in order to have them do something that they could succeed at or that I thought they could succeed at when they uh, when they showed that they were not able to handle the original 
uh, tasks they were giving. Of course, the problem when you do this is that you inadvertently reward poor behavior, at least the way I've done it, where uh, I've generally changed the person's role in such a way that they uh, are doing something that they're better at, that they like more than they were doing before. So the poor behavior, whatever it was, let's say being late or missing sessions or whatever, uh, ends up being uh, rewarded because now they're getting better tasks to do, tasks that maybe are more suited to their skills, uh, which you would think would be a good thing, but it's the shift uh, that happened because of some kind of um, lousy behavior that winds up uh, making the new thing uh, something that's reinforcing um, poor behavior. And I think it also sets a precedent of, uh, of poor boundaries. Sets the, sets the precedent of, you know, oh, I, I can just get away with things, there are no consequences, or the consequences only end up benefiting me. And uh, again, you know, on my end, I think it, it's kind of a problem of not being great at shaping behavior. You know, we, we tend, in, in dog training at least, we tend to think about shaping behavior uh, by using rewards, but you can also shape behaviors using negative reinforcement or punishment. It's not our preferred method when we're working with dogs, but in our own lives as human beings, behaviors are shaped all the time uh, because you do something and it results in something good being taken away from you or something bad happening and uh, that affects your behavior, that shapes what you do. And I do think that because we have language, we can use punishment sometimes more effectively with people than uh, we can with dogs because we can be extremely specific uh, about what we are punishing and why and how. And uh, I believe that punishing uh, effectively as a manager is, um, is a skill. And it's not something I'm very good at. Fortunately, you really can use antecedent arrangements and manage the environment with dogs in order to get behaviors that you want and uh, to set things up so you really really don't have to use punishment and maybe that's one of the reasons why I love training dogs so much so these are these are lessons I've learned and um, you know I hope this doesn't seem reductive to be comparing people to dogs uh, to be clear the science of behavior is not species specific but dog training is an application of that science and human management, organizational management, is another application of that science that has its own skill set 
its own technologies. And, you know, in my opinion, people are a lot more complicated than dogs, if only because there's so many more inputs that you just can't control about yourself or other people. You know, you have a dog from puppyhood until that dog is a senior, you will know most of the things that happen to that dog in its lifetime. Whereas when I'm working with uh, an employee who I'm meeting at for the first time and I don't know, they're 40 years old, that's 40 years of experiences they've had that are impacting their behavior, their perceptions of things, their preconceived notions. That person has their own currency of what's rewarding to them that I can only begin to learn. And that person is only spending a small fraction of their day with with me. So even though we have a common language and an ability to communicate that is um, very refined, there are so many other factors that are going to impact uh, the relationship and that person's behavior. So in contrast to that, dog training seems incredibly, (laughs) incredibly easy to me. And certainly when it comes to rewarding good behaviors with my dog, I am an employer with truly unlimited funds. So when I started this episode, I said I was going to talk about three things, but I want to throw in a fourth thing, uh, if only uh, because I'm wondering if someone might listen to this episode and think, how the hell does this woman (laughs) run a business that seems so successful when she has failed in all these ways? Well, I just wanted to point out one thing that um, I think Kate and I learned as dog trainers that I think really has helped the business succeed And that is that it's so important to focus on classical conditioning. This is true about, you know, dealing with our staff, but I think it's particularly true um, when it comes to dealing with our clients. You know, it's so important, I think, to make people feel good about what we're doing uh, in ways that, you know, can be really simple. Um, We want to um, give people a good experience. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the high quality of service that we provide. But some of it I really think has to do with um, things that are less tangible. You know, from the very beginning, I really wanted to create a space where people wanted to be, where people just felt good. There there was a period of a few months um, between when we were running things out of my apartment and when we opened our, our first storefront 
where we were working out of a dog daycare. And I just hated the way I felt there. I hated the lighting. I hated the the smells. I hated hearing dark dogs barking in the next room and people yelling at the dogs. Uh, none of it felt good to me, and it was um, it was clear to me that the way that people felt in that space was going to affect the way they felt about me and the way they felt about dog training and the way they felt about school for the dogs. And that by creating like a physical space that had a good vibe to it, that looked nice, that smelled nice, that that um, felt like a place where you wanted to hang out, uh, that, that those feelings would, those good feelings would rub off on the way people felt about our business. You know, same thing goes for our website. You know, thanks to Kate, who like I think is uh, a, a genius designer. From the very beginning, everything we produced just looked clean and sharp and nice. And that too impacted, I think, people's feelings about us. That's a lot of what branding is about. And I, I want every client who walks through the door to, to have those good feelings, um, whether or not they end up working with us. Um, and uh, I, think we, I think we've succeeded in, in that way, uh, in, in, in encouraging people to feel a certain way about our business that uh, benefits us in the end, just like we encourage our clients to focus on getting their dogs to feel good around them, to feel good in their homes, to feel good in all the places where those dogs are going to need to um, exist in, in their human in their humans' worlds, um, because when you have that basic foundation of good feelings, you have um, something really solid to build upon. Um, I, 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 I talk often about what I call criteria zero, setting setting a, a, a uh, your, your first criteria in any shaping plan, uh, <laughs> here I've just said I'm not very good at creating shaping plans, but I am good at, at the first very first step of any shaping plan, <laughs> which should be rewarding your subject for simply existing. And, you know, that's why people want their stores to look nice. That's why uh, people want to dress nicely. We want people to feel good about all these things um, from the get-go, even even before any kind of transaction happens. Uh, and I guess if if I had to give, I don't think I'm really suited. I don't think I'm really in a place to be giving any business advice to anyone. But if I was hard pressed to give business advice to someone starting a business. That would probably be it. Think about how, think first about how you want your clients to feel 
about your business in general, in general, and um, and figure out <clears throat> how you can provide an experience that will encourage those feelings from the beginning. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com. 